Welcome back to another episode of the Ecumen Present the Baltimore Catechism. We're going to continue where we left off on Lesson 2, discussing the truths of the Catholic Church, how we learn them, where we discover them, and how we share them with others. For all of our listeners out there, make sure that you hit subscribe if you're uh, watching on YouTube, or you uh, follow us on Spotify or SoundCloud or iTunes, wherever you happen to be listening, and we'll make sure to keep you up to date so you get the latest lessons and keep uh, learning more about the Catholic faith. So thanks for listening. So looking on at uh, 23a now, what do we mean when we say God has revealed these truths to us? God is a just father. Uh, God is a just king. He loves us enough that he's not going to go and keep it all hidden. He's not going to make it a surprise. We're not Gnostics. Everything is out there. Every single commandment he gave, he explained how it would be done, what we needed to do to make it happen. If there was any question that needed to be answered, he filled in those blanks. And in the end, he gave us the appropriate knowledge to find the individuals, to find the church. We can have confidence that the truth has been revealed to us. And, and that's that's the main thing here is that... It takes, this is where faith starts to come in, and I know we haven't touched on that virtue yet, but faith really is a key piece here, that we have to accept what God's given us, and that part of accepting God's existence is accepting the fact that he loves us enough, or he's not going to leave us wanting for any guidance. He's not going to leave us wanting for that truth that's required for us to be saved. So in the end, if it's there, then we have confidence that we can find it. And the thing about truth is truth is exclusive. So Carl Adam brings this up in The Spirit of Catholicism, really good book. He talks about the fact that that truth in and of itself is divisive, and we need to acknowledge this. This means there are not 47,000 flavors of truth. This means I can't have a whole bunch of competing religions all be the same. In the end, there has to be a singular truth that is comprehensive enough to tell me that a whole bunch of coexisting events and philosophies and people, and ultimately their statements, actually completely coincide with one another without any conflict whatsoever. God actually tells us as well, even in scripture, that he never contradicts himself, which means that I should be able to go through the entire Bible, everything that's out there, and tell you definitively there will never be any contradiction. And if you, for some reason, feel that you have found a contradiction in scripture, unfortunately, I can tell you, just as I have found out, just as all of us who are converts to the faith have found out, I am actually the problem with that contradiction. I created it in my own head I did not, or, or I, I didn't understand to, it to begin with. Yes, or I listened to someone who ultimately had a confusion, but this is not a contradiction of God, because he will never do that. And then this leads into the Bible as well. So what is the Bible? So th this is another complicated question, because everyone kind of has their own view of what it is and what they're supposed to do with it. The Bible is the written word of God committed to his church for the instruction and sanctification of mankind. It was assembled in 382, under direction of Pope Damasus I. It first gets assembled by Jerome uh, under Damasus' direction, so he puts it together, translates it into Latin, and now has what we now know as the Vulgate. This is the first compilation where they've actually agreed with multiple bishops together. Only about 60 years after the church is legalized in the empire, they have finally agreed on what the canon of scripture is. What started out as 300 letters including Gnostics and all other manner of pagans who had just threw in all this other stuff to say that, you know, of course Christ would have wanted me to do this and I'm going to make it up as I go so it works out good for me. The Catholic Church is, no, we're not going to deal with those types of things. We need to trace it back. If we cannot find out where a letter originated, it will not go into our canon of Scripture. The Bible itself, the 73 books that are left, are the approved God's honest truth, Catholic Scriptures, Christian Scriptures, and nothing else outside of them can be treated as inerrant in the same vein. Whoa, Pete. 
Would you say the Bible is a Catholic document? Absolutely, 100%. This is why the first time we see all the Gospels mentioned together is not during the apostolic era because the apostles were still writing the letters. And by the time the last of the letters are being written uh, by John the Evangelist, the rest of the apostles are dead. They have never actually read the entire New Testament all together. How Didn't did happen. they know what to teach? What was in scripture? Oral traditions. As we talked about above in the beginning of question 23, the traditions of Christ were passed on by word of mouth to each of the other apostles when they were ordained a priest and ultimately a bishop. This is why in Second Thessalonians, Paul explicitly says you need to follow the traditions we gave you orally as much as those that were written in word. And so in the end, you don't see the four gospels show up together ever until 188. So this is now 150 years after Christ has risen and gone into heaven. Does the Catholic Church even start to show the fact that, oh, hey, we have four Gospels. We don't see the New Testament even get assembled until 300-something under Athanasius is the first one to actually mention it in one of his uh, letters that he writes. So we got a lot of things that are developing and growing here. Uh, I'll include references to these as well, because these are all really important pieces of, of understanding of how the faith came to be. But in the end, remember too, I'm going to hit this as well. This is really important. The Bible in and of itself, although it's great, and it is absolutely inerrant, and it's absolutely core to the teachings, was inaccessible for 1,800 years to most of the Christians that lived on this earth. And I'm talking 90% of them. And you may ask, why would they be inaccessible? Because if you look at literacy statistics, going back from as far as they can look back, it was not good. Most people did not know how to read. They were working people. There were very few individuals, save monks and bishops, who actually knew how to read and write. So you end up having, by the time you get to 1820, you have an estimated 15% literacy rate throughout the world. That's not high. This means this is after the printing press has already been made in 1500. And before that, they don't have any way to actually make paper, and they don't have any way to print any of their ink, which means you have this collection of works, scrolls in the 300s, because they don't invent books until the middle to the late part of that fourth century. So the new invention that is the book doesn't actually exist by the time they decide they're going to assemble all these biblical books together. The individuals who decide, hey, I can start using books now, they can't do it out of papyrus because when papyrus gets wet, it goes away instantaneously, basically disintegrates. So they're like, what else do I have? All I got is leather. So they can go and get animals together. But how many animals does it take to put together a Bible of thousands of pages? Well, somewhere around 900 animals is ultimately what it took them in terms of skins to put together to make this Bible. And again, most people can't read or write, so who has to do it? Monks. How long does it take a monk to handwrite thousands of pages <laughs> of scripture so that a bishop can take this later and start giving instruction? Well, it takes him about three years. So if I take 900 animals, which most people didn't have 900 animals. I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> and most people ultimately here uh, don't have the ability to have a monk at their disposal, which means now this is, we're coming up real short here. Um, this means you're looking at a, a collection of works, this newfangled book that most people haven't seen or even know what to do with it, that now is a treasure, a gem. It is actually worth something like three times the salary of these average working people out there. So today, if we're going to just look at average working people and we say the average salary is somewhere around $40,000, you're talking $120,000 book, people, that no one can read. 
And everyone's going to say, well, why'd they lock those Bibles up? Well, because if you have a book that actually will fit in a cart, and all I got to do is walk into a place and throw it in my cart and steal it, I can go and sell this for a lot of money if I really wanted to be a jerk about it, which is the whole, uh, that's St. Anthony, what he's known for. The Bible actually gets stolen in the 1200s, and then he gets to go and ask for prayers to be like, hey, where did this Bible go? And it turns up and he gets it back. This is a big deal in that time frame. So we can't sit there and say anything nonsensical like Luther made up, like Sola Scriptura. It is flat out nonsense when most people can't read. And even today, I think what, in some of the major cities, you're looking at a, a literacy rate of still around 50%. Like most of the people that are actually just in poor, like poverty stricken areas can't read or write properly. It's functionally literate. It's terrible. So in the end, you have to have clergy who actually listens to the traditions passed to them by bishops, reading the scriptures that were very limited access, and then pass this on. This is ultimately why the Catholic Church has statues and why they have all this artwork. Because in the end, you have to have a gospel that reaches people who cannot read. Why do you have readings in Mass or in now any of the spin-offs of Mass where they're going to start talking about the epistle and then they're going to talk about the gospel because this is the only way they're going to get the scripture. They're never going to read I was it. In, uh, I was in a church recently and they had two stained glass windows, one row on the bottom, one row on the top, all around the church. The top windows were all New Testament. The bottom windows were all Old Testament stained glass windows. And so between, I think there's probably, I want to say a dozen in each row on each side of the church. So you had about 24 Old Testament stories and 24 New Testament stories that were all there in stained glass window in picture form. And this church was built in, I think, 1868 is what it was. So all that is there for people to essentially learn. Combine that then also with the Stations of the Cross that are there around the church, and combine that also with the statues. And so there you are, you have it essentially, the you have scripture acted out for the person who is not fortunate enough to read. It's also one of the interesting facts too, and I think it's pretty well known, but for those who don't know it, it's why you have those terrible looking gargoyles outside of a lot of the Gothic cathedrals, because that is essentially the symbol of what awaits you if you leave the church. I think for most... Uh most people, I like to kind of stomp on the fact that the timeline for this was nearly 370-ish years, give or take a few. I'm not, I'm not doing guerrilla math in my head right now. You know, think about where we were as a country, 2019, 300, you know, 50, 370 years ago, and the generations involved, the handoff, the, the oral tradition to pass down, because if we're falling back on the very Protestant notion of, you know, Bible alone, well, no one has one. So does that mean everybody was condemned? For the first four centuries, you know, hardly, you know, we'd have to go past to, you know, 18, 1800 years before we get to a point where now we understand that we just have to believe and we're all saved and we don't owe God anything else. But the document itself, the Bible itself is a Catholic product from a Catholic council that was promulgated under the authority of a very Catholic Pope. And this was, a, I know it seems like very trivial right now for most Catholics to be hearing this, but as a Protestant, this was one of the the big pivot points in my, I guess, my research to go, oh man, yeah, I guess there was a group of people with some authority that could dictate this. And without the Catholic Church right now, no matter what flavor of Protestantism you are, you would not have your Bible if it was not for the Catholic Church. I think we have to remember too, so not only in 382 is the Council of Rome held where they actually determined for the first time these are the actual 73 books that actually are still valid based on the Septuagint, mind you. That's the Old Testament books that the Jews ultimately were unable to find in the uh, second century when they were trying to assemble the Hebrew scriptures after they worked with the Romans to have the Levites executed. So the last of the Sanhedrin was killed. They had no way of actually promulgating then 
this truth because they were persecuting the Christians who held on to the scriptures they had, and they got rid of their priests, and then the temple was destroyed. In the end, you have this weird bastardized thing that used to be the Israelite faith that used to be under Mosaic law, where they had to redo their laws and they had to redo their practices because they no longer could sacrifice their animals in a temple anymore. They no longer had priests to do the sacrifice. And most importantly, back to this whole Bible problem, they no longer had an assembled list of scripture that they could use anymore. So by the second century, they ultimately put together then what they can find and come up, say, I don't know, seven books short. And then you have someone, Martin Luther, come along who ignores the fact that, like I said, Irenaeus of Lyon in 188 names the four Gospels. You have Tertullian in around 200 is the first person to call that collection of scriptures that were written by the Catholic bishops, those first 12 bishops, uh, I guess I don't remember how many of them actually were in there, if we include Paul and James and all of them. But either way, those first bishops wrote the scriptures that are ultimately called first uh, New Testament in 200. You have Pope St. Siricius is the one who actually first calls it the Bible. So this is... <laughs> This comes in, I think, in the 300s, somewhere in there. And then you don't even have, and this gets into, as we keep going forward, uh, we'll talk uh, more, but the original sc scrolls that the scripture was written on, you have to remember that these guys, they can't afford all the paper that they're writing this on. It's expensive, and they're doing it all handwritten. And in the end, they only have so much time. They are limited in terms of all their supplies. So what do they do? They write all of their characters in the same case they write them without spaces and they write them without punctuation how many people can read that so even if we get to the point where now we're just talking about how few people can read in general how many people are going to be able to decrypt this now scroll that goes on for who knows how long and you have to find all the divisions of the words and reassemble it in a way that actually makes any sense this is why you don't even see verses and chapters in the bible until you get to the 1200s so you have Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Cardinal Hugo de Caro were the men who actually in the 1200s are the first ones to give chapter and verse to the scriptures. All of that considered, we have to remember then the Bible is a great inerrant document upon which we rely as part of the triune transmission of the deposit of truth, the deposit of the faith held by the church. And tradition is the other one, and magisterium, which is the authority to continue teaching, basically what Moses walked down from Mount Sinai with as he delivered the tablets and started to judge the Israelites. Those three things are what allow us to transmit the truth. And so the Bible is a key piece of that. But again, as Catholics, we have to acknowledge as Christians, it's not the only piece. So this goes into, again, we've talked about the inerrancy. This is where we would go into 23C, where we talk about what do we mean to say the Bible is inspired? Well, the entire Bible was inspired because God was the one who wanted it written. But again, this is where we're going to have to go and blow up another philosophy of Christ alone that Luther comes up with, where he says, we just go straight to Christ for everything. Well, if we go straight to Christ for anything, why did he not tell anyone to write a Bible? And not only did he not tell anyone to write a Bible, but then some of his bishops actually did write a Bible, even though they weren't told to. And they wrote it at different times. They wrote letters. And even then, they never even talked about why they should assemble it. Nowhere in any book of scripture does it actually call out the other books, the other letters that were written. So in the end, God is using his apostles to promulgate the truth of the church in these letters that they all author independently of one another for different purposes at different times. Starting around, I think it's like the 40s, I think is when they think the first of the letters starts to come out. Um, and then Matthew's gospel being the first of the gospels that happens a few years after the first of the letters go. But in the end, how do all these bishops write from all these different locations? So Matthew, I believe in Africa and Thomas is over in India. Some of these guys like Thomas, we don't see any scripture from, but you end up seeing Jude, which I think he may have been, was it Persia? 
something like that. So you have all these, and you have John who ultimately ends up at Patmos, but they're writing in all different times and all different parts of the world, yet somehow not one of them has even a single error in it. Maybe God works through his disciples. Hmm. Is it, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm confused. Is it Christ alone or scripture alone? Oh, there's a lot of alones. A lot of alones. I yeah. think there's five, actually. Yeah. It gets really confusing. <laughs> and I think few. perhaps his, his definition of alone is different than the actual definition of alone. I, I wasn't sure, though. <laughs> uh, the, the original Greek word for alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my maybe favorites. That, maybe that was the That's one of my there. favorites when I hear someone go, the original Greek word, and I'm like, oh, stop. You don't speak Greek. <laughs> stop it. So overall, we can confidently say that the Bible was inspired because Christ made it happen, but Christ is not the hand that penned it. It was men who submitted to the will of God to allow that divine inspiration to do what they needed to do. To goes back to that whole degree of good and how close to God's perfection you are. Yes, and the apostles were very, very close. They received it, they transmitted it, and that... Bible is completely inspired without error. The only errors that anyone could possibly see to this day, which is the reason why everyone says, man, isn't it terrible that the Catholics burned books? The problem here is when we look at Bibles like those of the Mormons or those of the Jehovah's Witnesses, we look at John 1, 1, where they sit there and say, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Terribly, terribly pagan. So the question is, if we're going to sit there and say that the word was a god and everyone can be a god, God's going to find that offensive. And uh, now the question from the church is, do we let this stand? Do we let people fall into error and just walk down this road of paganism that we've been fighting from the very beginning? It was paganism that ultimately destroyed everything in Canaan that the Israelites were commanded to destroy back. And then ultimately the pagans in Rome and Greece were the ones that actually persecuted first the Israelites in Judah, and then ultimately the Christians after that. So the church, God himself, has been fighting paganism, which is ultimately demon worship, forever. We cannot allow that stuff to stand without any challenge to it. We have to sit there and point it out and teach correction. And so what they would do is sit there and say, we got to get rid of this stuff that's not divinely inspired after they've mistranslated it and turned it into something that it's not. What well, comes back that any non-truth is an offense to truth. There's no such thing as benign falsehood. I always like the parent analogies. So, Mother Church, couldn't tell. Being, uh, my kids teach me a lot of lessons, uh, especially about myself. But uh, Mother Church loves us, and God wills us to heaven. Uh, that's what He wants for us. So, why would Mother Church let us ingest poison to the detriment of our souls? It it does us no good. And uh, like a good loving mother, she's going to take you know the poison out of her hands destroy it i mean what parent wouldn't do that for their kid yeah and, and the other thing is too that for those who aren't familiar uh with the concept uh the catholic church is the bride of christ so jesus protects the his bride in the exact same way that a husband protects his bride he looks after her and so he's not going to let things befall her that he does not wish he is all-powerful and therefore he will not allow a falsehood to be promulgated by his bride to his children Speaking of how he took care of his children, how is the Bible divided? It's divided into an Old Testament before the coming of Christ and the New Testament. And this is where, again, we'll reiterate, even though there are two testaments and there's multiple parts, and I believe there's multiple covenants in there, and off the top of my head, I can't remember how many covenants there were if I go between Moses, Abraham, Noah, and ultimately the one through Christ. We have a whole different way. that this. There's fire and brimstone God, and then there's there's hippie God. <laughs> Those are, that's, what, that's all you need to know from... From that, that's it, right? 
I, I got it. No. Heard, heard that in a sermon one time? I heard that in, well, you, you, have, you probably could, if, depending <laughs> on what church you went to. Yeah, the, the main thing we're taking away here is even though the Bible is divided into those two parts, they're complementary of the whole. There is no way to actually understand the New Testament without the Old. The Old Testament is a whole set of prefigurements, and a prefigurement is ultimately uh, an example a foretelling, a foreshadowing of things that are to come so that the Jews who were faithful were able to see as Christ begins to do the work in his ministry, his public ministry, he starts saying things and doing signs that were ultimately foretold by Isaiah, were foretold by Ezekiel, were foretold by uh, Daniel, Daniel, Micah, uh, all these people uh, out there are telling what's going to happen and anyone who pays attention they see it. This is where he goes and talks about why am I speaking in parables? Because the people who actually know me and know what to look for will get it. Where all of those people who are just kind of following for their own people devices. People who don't want to understand will not understand. Like Judas. Judas yeah. never really got he it. He walked around with Jesus for three years watching every miracle he did. Amen. Learning from him. Talking to him in the flesh. Asking him questions. And then not only walked away but betrayed him. Raised the freaking dead. I mean... Who would see that and just deny that? But your heart is your heart. Yeah, and the, and over there we have to then look at then from start to finish. This is God, and he was trying to go and set it up so we can see the whole picture and understand who he is. He never changes, but Jesus is ultimately the redemption, the, the, the merciful component of his justice. In all fairness, when we're going to look at the fact again, try to emphasize the fact that the new and the old are together, he talks about hell more in the New Testament, the one that everyone tries to talk about all of his mercy, devoid of his justice, he talks about hell, I don't know how many times over, more intensely than he does in the Old Testament. He hardly mm -hmm. addresses the, the hell at all in the Old Testament. I think they bring up Shale a few times, and I believe in Maccabees they talk yeah, about Yeah, there's a few the dudes dead. who get swallowed up. Yes. You should explain the, the history and the actual functioning of, of this, of the, the burn pits and everything else, the analogies that Christ was bringing in. Yeah, and if you look to in the scriptures as well, this is where the Old Testament is actually it's key. Um, they talk often about, I think there's like, in terms of the paganism and all the weirdness of the paganism, there's something like 35, over 35, named deities that are in there. So these are demons that are posing as gods that come down and say, I have this name, and I'm going to go and hurt you, or I'm going to give you all these good things if you just go and do what I want you to do. And part of the rituals that come out of this paganism, this demon worship, is they basically start talking about how they, if they just give stuff to these demons, the demons will give them good stuff back. Unfortunately, that usually meant human sacrifice because if they weren't killing animals and giving them to these demons these gods of theirs they were killing people one of the places they do that is the valley of Gehenna and so that gets brought up multiple times it's in the Old Testament well it's also in the New Testament but you don't see it in the translations that are made often in English because of the fact that they just kind of gloss everything over and just say hell but if you actually look at what Christ says as he talks about this place he uses two different words depending on what he's talking about. This is going back. We haven't gotten there, and we will talk about it coming up down the road. Purgatory. He has two different words that he's using in Greek, if you actually read the Greek texts, which you can find there this on is. Bible Hub, and I can go and uh, pull that up. Sorry about that. There you go. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I'm going to tighten my tie that I'm wearing here. And uh, when you look at those two words, one of them is Gehenna, where he talks about that fiery pit that you'll never get out of, which is where all the sinners go that never come out. The unrepentant sinners are going to be burned forever. But the one that he talks about is the temporary one, where we have to pay to the last penny and ultimately mm -hmm. people get out. 
He uses the word Hades. So he actually talks about there's two different words that are being used there. But in the end, you wouldn't see that discrepancy if you weren't looking at the differences, or I should say the highlights, what was revealed in the Old Testament. Yeah, I think too, by the way, speaking of Old and New Testament, I think it's important to make the distinction because, oh man, you see this all over the place. Evangelicals love Israel, the Jews, God's chosen people. When we're talking about Jews in the Old Testament, we're talking about Semitic people. It's an ethnic group. So we're yeah. not talking about modern Judaism, um, and the two are used, the religion and the, the ethnic group are used interchangeably and a third, all the time. This is the other problem here, too, is that if we actually go to the Old Testament, there's a third type of Jew. So if we're talking about Jews, we have to watch out the context that we use this word, because technically Israel had 12 sons. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was Judah, and those people who followed in his line were known as Jews, because Judah was the patriarch of that family line of the nation of Israel of Judah. That's why he ends up getting, like all of the sons, ended up having their own part in the promised land where their family would settle. So there's the people who are actually the of the line of Judah, there's people who actually live in Judah, or, and that was the, I guess, Greek was they kept Judah, and then finally in Roman, they go with Judea. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who lived in Judah or Judea ultimately gets titled by the Greeks and the Romans as Jews. They don't care what the bloodline was, when in all reality, in Judah, Judea, at the time of Christ, you still have Benjamites, Levites at the temple, and actual Jews of the tribe of Judah all residing in that place. And by this point in time, also after the Babylonian conquering and the Assyrians and all the other stuff had happened, all the rest of the tribes were no longer purebloods and are also now known as Samaritans. So all you have left at this point when we're talking about Jews during Christ's time, we're mostly referring to those residents of Judea who were of the Hebrew origins, Israelite blood, and it's them who are trying to observe the old Mosaic laws. So that's the Jews of Judea. And then the third one, which is the most confusing especially in this day and age, and especially with that, that Zionist thing that we were talking about. Again, we can, we'll include links to the Zionist thing here uh, in the description below, but this is where the Judaism comes in, and this mm-hmm. whole mess gets even worse because now you have the Pharisees who decide to create their own religion because they had denied Christ, and they have to justify why they murdered the Son of God, the second person in God. They supposedly follow God, and it's all about the, his commandments until he actually comes to them and says, no, no, I'm God, and they're like, no, I'm going to kill you now. I think God's probably not going to treat them as a privileged people anymore. And at that juncture, then, they now separate themselves off of the truth. They have separated themselves from the church. They have fully apostatized and fallen into insurmountable evil, save converting and leaving that faith and coming into Christianity. Yeah, and so essentially the way it's very often conceptualized in poorly catechized Catholics or Protestants or or just secularists in general with a passing interest in history is that Judaism has always been and that Christianity sprung out of Judaism and that is definitely reversed. Judaism happens after the death of Christ. That is when you have modern Judaism and it's really a sleight of hand for the modern day Jews, quote unquote Jews, to name their state Israel when Israel is the Catholic Church. Israel is the, the chosen people. Israel means... The nation that stands with God? Yes. Or the or the, he who stands with God in terms of the individual Israel. When we talk Israel or we see Israel written about by uh, Paul in Galatians, he's talking about that body, that institution that stands with God. One cannot stand with God when you kill him. It's Correct. done. There's no yeah. longer a chosen status. It's done. You are now outside of the fold. And then these individuals now spent the rest of their existence before they were ultimately thrown out of what was left in Judea 
And around 130-ish, 132-ish, I think is when the Bar Kokhba revolt happens. The Romans come in and crush all of them. That was the last of their rule of anything in that region of the world. So Israel now, the nation state with borders, is not what God wants to support. God wants to support his church, which Paul refers to. This is the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ. And those people redeemed in Israel are those people that are attached to the Catholic Church. Yeah, it's very sad, too, to see these very poorly educated mainly protestants like the protestants really have a, a fetish for the state of israel it is unfortunate um being a you can see it wherever you look at any news article any facebook post twitter uh you know must so we you know we must support israel to god's chosen people and it's like i what the, go be a jew then it's right. completely obnoxious. It's like, yeah. how much do you really understand Christ if you're telling me this other religion is better and the preferred of the God? The one that literally denies his divinity. It just shows their, somehow his chosen people. It's their level of understanding. But it's the, uh, so if anyone is trying to wrap their heads around this for the first time, the straight line from Moses to Christ is to the church. That is the new Israel. And Talmudic Judaism, uh, the Judaism you recognize today as a modern Jewish faith, is younger than Christianity. Because the actual Catholic Church was founded at the Last Supper. So, And then if we keep going, uh, we have Pentecost. Um, the Pharisees at this point had not actually reassembled anything. They were still sacrificing or having sacrifices done in the temple for them. They had not seen anything necessarily change, even though their last official sacrifice that was ever offered, their last lamb, it was offered to God, was one offered on a cross, not in the old temple, not where the ark no longer resided. And not, not out of goodwill either, might I add. Yes. So <laughs> not, exactly, not exactly a happy So when Caiaphas rents his, rents his garments, he actually deposes himself as the head of the church. And then now that would be retaken by Peter because Peter was still actually going to do the will of God. So Christ had then moved the chair of Moses to the chair of Peter. Now this chair piece and ultimately that relationship, again, going back to the Old Testament, the reason we look at the chair of Peter is you look at Matthew 23, 2 and 3, and there you see Christ actually commanding his apostles, you will do what the Pharisees command because they sit on the chair of Moses. Well, that's interesting because we're talking about a chair, also known as a cathedra. And if we are familiar with our Catholic buildings, we have cathedrals. The cathedrals are where bishops, successors to the apostles, sit. That cathedra, that seat, is ultimately the judgment seat that Moses was given to judge Israel. And in the end, Jesus transfers it to Peter. This is also where he talks about the keys and he talks about the Holy Father and he talks about the garments that are worn to actually signify what's going on. And he talks about the fact that there are bad ones and there are good ones. That's all in Isaiah 22. It's actually all there. But if we don't know what's going on in the Old Testament, we have no idea what to expect. These facts, these correlations go on over and over and over again. But this is where we have to make sure the Old Testament and the New Testament get handled together. We're going to handle this more as we go on in future episodes. Yeah, prepare for all that as we keep going. So now moving on, are all the passages of the Bible to be understood according to our modern manner of expression? No. <laughs> Modernism, the modern era, is quite separated, unfortunately, from God. We have to remember we're 2,000 years now on the other side of Christ. And unfortunately, if we just look around, probably walking away from God. If I had to take a wild crack at it. And when we look at the modern era, it means that we're not going to be able to understand some of the passages that are written in the Bible because it's talking about cultural pieces, cultural practices, cultural statements, things like that, that will not have any 
meaning to us, which means we actually have to have people who understand these periods of time to teach us what it actually means. This is the reason why uh, when we look at Acts, and again, going back to the Ethiopian, he says, I can't learn this by myself. Someone's got to teach me. In the end, these parables and literary forms, etc., very ancient. Well, our only connection to that ancient world is the church. That's the most ancient institution that exists on the face of this earth today that holds that continuity of God because he told us it would. We have to go back to them to get this truth. Just agricultural references alone uh, can just leave me my head spinning. Uh, so it's kind of a weird, uh, weird, I guess, prop to give. But Father Wolf you know, on Census Fidelium has, has given me a lot of depth of understanding of just the basic care and feeding and maintenance of these animals. And you start looking at the analogies that go back to Christ as, as the good shepherd. Uh, it has so much more meaning. Uh, it's so many more layers to it. And uh, actually, I'm a little ashamed to admit this. I was watching Little House on the Prairie the other day because there's literally nothing else on. I had a few minutes. But they were they were doing the old sifting of wheat the old-fashioned way. And as watching, you do. As, as you do. Um, but the amount, I've never really seen it done before. It was just oh. kind of just awesome to watch because I'm sitting there, all these parables are coming through my head. And I'm just watching the chaff, and I'm watching the threshing room floor, and all these the analogies back to hell, and and you know, all this that you know, we just kind of covered. It's like wow, that's it's incomprehensible the amount of souls that may be lost, and what we're really up against here as far as the stakes. I think it, there's there's a lot of danger because uh, one of my guilty pleasures is to listen to televangelists. I just I don't know. I just He's outed now. I know. I just enjoy uh, hearing what their wrong thoughts are, I guess. But you hear it a lot in Protestant circles that Jesus spoke to the Jews, first century Jews, as they would have understood it. And while some of that may be true, there may be some, you know, I mean, he's a man. He's having a discussion. You know, he's not going to speak in terms that they don't understand. I think it's very dangerous, though, to say, well, what he meant, he's speaking there as the, as they would have understood it. Because what you're saying is that he meant it as they understand it. And as you understand it now, you know, the emphasis gets put on how you comprehend vice what he's actually saying, what the actual meaning that he he's giving or conveying, I should say. So moving on, so 23F here, as we're continuing to go into the Bible and the truth and trying to uh, look at the deposit of truth that's being passed on by the church, how can we know the true meaning of the Bible? And we've just touched on it, really, is looking at it going, the Catholic Church is the only way to actually receive this truth, whether we like it or not. And this is not us just going and making this up. Again, the main thing that we're trying to communicate to you guys here in this podcast is that we're not giving you our personal opinions. This is stuff that was actually argument. all written down. We're, we're trying to continue to promulgate everything that's been handed to us by the, the church. And when we go and sit there and talk to you about these things in the Bible, this is actually in Scripture that we're supposed to be going back to the church for that teaching. When we look at Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Christ literally says, if you're going to correct someone, you can try to do it yourselves, but in the end, if they don't listen, you have to turn them back to the church. The church is the only place. And if they reject the church teachings, then I can't help them because now they're actually rejecting me. This is basically if people reject the apostles, and I believe this is in Luke, then he says, you're also rejecting me. And that's where even Peter then comes in in uh, 2 Peter 3.16. And he says, some of these scriptures are really difficult to understand. And unfortunately, people can distort them. And what does that mean for how to learn it? This means I can't learn it myself. This means I can sit there and say, I think the Holy Ghost is inspiring me. And then unfortunately, anyone could legitimately ask me, which Holy Ghost are you talking to? Because I don't know. I can feel something, but my feeling does not equate to infallible truth. Yeah, well, it goes back to Brian's uh, favorite parent analogies here. 
you know, we talked about, we actually talked about this earlier today, believe it or not, Pete, that the, the Bible is not prescriptive, right? You know, it's not like line by line, the what ifs, what if this happens, do this, what if this happens, do this, right? Because when you start getting into that, when you go down that rabbit hole, well then, oh, well, this wasn't mentioned in the 18,000 pages, so it must be okay. Uh, no, that's not true. God knew that, and you know, we haven't really gotten to this yet, but God knew that there were other forces at work that were going to try and lead us astray. So he gave charge again to his bride to teach us the correct meaning. That's a, he trusts his, his bride to give us the, the one true meaning as he intended it. And so, yes, again, it, it's not, not based on your feelings or my feelings or, or any of that stuff. And in fact, we're actually arguing against that. Turn to the one sole possessor of the truth, which is the church, which is Christ's bride, who he gave his charge to teach his children and uh, rear them in the way that he wanted. Yeah, I guess the, uh, the modern analogy would be if you're a Protestant and you're out there and you're listening, does your church allow contraception? Does your neighbor's church not allow it? You know, what about abortion? What about you know, same-sex marriage? What about drinking? Drinking? Oh, that's a good Alcohol. one. Yeah. So if, if God can't contradict himself and he's all truth and eternal, how do we have these differing opinions? And there, there must be a place where the deposit of faith is protected and infallibly declared through time immemorial. Who was it the other day that was talking? And, and you, Peter, upon this rock, I build my 40,000 churches. <laughs> or 50. I, I, yeah, or 50. I, I can't remember which, uh, uh, forgive me, I can't remember who. Restoring the faith. I, I think it might have been guys. Restoring the Faith Media. Yeah, they made that joke, which I found very funny. No, he said, there's on you, Peter, upon this rock, I build my church. So, and then I'm going to jump into another awesome misnomer that uh, Catholics always get beat up for this one. So, 23G. Are Catholics encouraged by the church to read the Bible, contrary to popular opinion and practice? No, we go it alone. (laughs) (laughs) With the exception of of Jake here. The rest of us, yeah. (laughs) The rest of us, actually, yes, we're encouraged to read the Bible and encouraged by the church to know those scriptures as we can get access to them and the Gospels. And ultimately, not just to interpret for ourselves, we have... 2,000 years of church doctors and fathers writing about every single facet of everything written in the entire set of scriptures. We have the Bible. We have its interpretations. We can see handfuls of interpretations regarding, like, Revelation and who the woman clothed in the sun actually happens to be. Is it the church? Is it Mary? Or, huh, look at that. It's both. Well, we wouldn't know that if it weren't for the church telling us all of these different things. And, and otherwise, we would just sit there arguing with each other. There's no way to come to an agreement. We, we look at, like, now the Constitution and, again, the Second Amendment. No one agrees on what that means. Some people think it's just for hunting. Some people think it's actually furry bear arms. Who knows? It's anything you want it to be because it's all interpretation of by ourselves. In the end, we have to watch out if we think we can interpret God's word for ourselves into anything we want it to be. Then in the end, everyone has his own gospel. Everyone becomes his own pope. And then everyone stands in contradiction to God's power. And that's not what we are supposed to be doing. So are we encouraged to read the Bible? Yes. But in the end, when it comes to interpretation, we leave that to the church. 23H, what is the chief message of the New Testament? The New Testament, joyful announcement of our salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, when we say this, we are not saying it like Baptists. We are not saying it like Calvinists. We are saying it from the standpoint of we have the opportunity to receive baptism, which ultimately saves us from the camp of Satan on this earth. That means we now have an opportunity to work and coordinate and apply to apply our will 
to Christ's will, to God's will, so that he actually will allow us to work with him so that we may be saved forever in heaven. But if we go and focus on Romans and we look at the rest of the New Testament that's out there, it is said multiple times, we can fall away. We can screw this up. We have to remember that the New Testament letters are written to tell Christians, mind you, where they have gone astray. And in the end, we have to acknowledge the fact that we can fall away. So when we say salvation there, we are acknowledging the fact that any of us can fall into sin. And if we do not repent, if we do not acknowledge our errors, if we do not submit with humility to God Almighty, uh, there's no way we can actually be saved with Christ. Yeah, you don't get to be baptized and do a profession of faith and then punch your ticket to heaven. Yeah, and if that's, you do, that's not that's not how it works. And if you do fall away, the scripture does ultimately say that those who received that truth and those graces and then refuse it will actually be punished worse than those who never received it at all. So it's just something to consider. But in the end, the chief message here: salvation is key. This is why we're doing this for eternity. But salvation is not assured, and we're going to talk also, about that going forward. I think it also goes back though. Sorry to interrupt, Pete. When you're talking about the Catholics, going back to the Catholics, read the Bible. Well, yes, I think it was, is it Peter Kreft that talks about the symphony of Iluvatar in Lord of the Rings, right? The, the music and what part you play in it. Of course, why wouldn't you read the Bible to see the overall poetic symphony that is the this whole story of creation and mankind? And from that, gain some perspective of where you fit in to playing in that, in that music. And so the story of the New Testament, you know, we don't want to go too much down the rabbit hole because we haven't gotten to these lessons yet, but, you know, the fall of man and then the redemption of man and how is that brought about? And and once you start putting all that into context of the Old and New Testament and, and the prophecies and this and that, and it and all just, no, no man could have thought up that plot line, essentially, you know. So, of course, yes, we read the Bible and what's the message of the New Testament? Redemption, but not without work. And now we're going to move into tradition. So we've talked a lot about the Bible. We've also talked about the church and the three pillars being the scripture and the tradition and the magisterium. The tradition is the next question here with 23i. What is that divine tradition? Well, we talked about it a little bit with Paul passing it on in uh, Thessalonians. We've talked about the fact that the apostles had to teach and promulgate the faith. So the 3,000 at Pentecost, they didn't read the Bible and, and get converted. And when the apostles traveled all over the world to all the different countries that they ended up in and ultimately get martyred, they were not martyred because of the Bible. They were martyred because they were spreading the divine tradition, the unwritten word of God, those truths revealed by God to the apostles, held by the church, preserved by the Holy Ghost. And again, Jesus Christ was the one who delivered it. This tradition, this, this uh, set of practices, this set of beliefs, this is what ultimately allows the Catholic Church to remain steady going forward in a way that no other body, no, and there's only one body of Christ, so let me say no other body, no other church that claims to be the body of Christ can ever do. It's funny there's no tradition alone. Got grace, glory of God alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, faith alone, tradition. no tradition alone. Luther missed that part, apparently. Yeah. Well, I mean, tradition brings with it a lot of what we were talking about earlier, responsibilities, accountability, like... There's a lot of work involved. There's a lot of uncomfortableness involved with tradition. Uh, a lot of requirements on your time, on your efforts, on your you know talent, money. It's um, a relay race. It's an easy yeah. way. That's an easy way to cut. Ooh, I'm not a big fan of tradition. Scripture alone, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> it is the way. 
All right, and that leads into 23J. So even though we're talking about tradition being passed initially in unwritten word, the question here is, has divine tradition ever been committed to writing? And here we would say, yes, it absolutely has. And this is where the church fathers, these are the first apostles, the, the first, I guess, successors to the apostles, and, and you could even include the, the apostles themselves. I guess they were the original fathers of the church. They actually start writing all this down. So not only do we have the original scriptures closing out with John the Evangelist, about that same time is when we see Clement of Rome, the fourth pope, ordained by Peter himself, writing his letter. We see Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, and Irenaeus all over the next uh, few years. They're writing. You see Justin Martyr. You have these handful of great writers, these great men. I'm going to include the link to the Church Fathers as well, because there's a bunch of writings that you can get. But thankfully, the Church has all of these things written down that ultimately expand our understanding of Scripture, understands the virtues that Christ promulgated. We get to know more about that truth. And this divine tradition is not actually the same as revelation, but it ultimately is expanding on God's revelation. So after the apostles went, we're not expecting any new apostles to come in. There's not going to be any new gospels. There's not going to be any new epistles, that type of thing. Yeah, I know we talked about this recently, but you have to be a pretty bold Christian to discount uh, a guy like Irenaeus you know, in Polycarp, because you have to then just kind of reject the St. John the evangelist. And from there, he sat at the, the, the same table the Blessed Mother. Like, this is a straight line of tradition, and uh, we are so fortunate to uh, even have access to some of this these days. Yeah, and this is where we can then add on to the fact is that does divine tradition have the same force as a Bible? This is 23K. Yes, it does. It was just as true when it came from God's mouth, from Christ's mouth, as was the truth that ultimately inspired and resulted in the scriptures. So overall, these both hold the same weight. And we cannot use anyone to discount the other. And again, going back to the fact that God never contradicts himself, tradition and scripture are completely 100% in alignment. Now, if you see in any, we'll go with lowercase c church, that out there claims it has a tradition, and you can find scriptures that say, nope, that's not it, you're going to see there that this probably isn't true. Now, this is where Protestants will come in and say, so you guys worship, you know, statues and all this other nonsense. Well, the problem here is going back to who taught those individuals that what Catholics are doing with veneration and honor of saints and making these statues and making these pieces of artwork, which ultimately are our family photos. We, we have family photos everywhere. We like to keep them on our mantles. We like to put them in our churches. We like to put them everywhere. Some of them even like in our cars, in our pockets, on our desks at work. We have the pictures of our family members and these saints are our family members. They are not God. We do not worship them. But if someone has a bad teacher, and they never actually learn from the church, then in the end, they're going to learn a whole bunch of stuff that actually has no understanding, all because they didn't have, excuse me, they did not have the divine tradition necessary to educate them on what that meaning of those passages happened to be. And in the end, they set themselves up for a very lonely existence apart from that richness of the faith and all of those men who God tasked, and women who God tasked to actually spread the truth of this church. I think Fulton, Fulton Sheen said, uh, there's not a hundred people in America who hate the Catholic church but there are millions who hate what they think the Catholic Church is. And I always think of, especially, man, when especially when I hear the, the idol worship, we've all heard them, all the different things thrown at, at Catholics. I can only think of John Goodman from The Big Lebowski. You're like a child, Donnie, who wanders into a movie with no frame of reference. You know, like, when you don't have tradition, you're just a leaf floating in the wind. Essentially, your tradition is what your grandfather taught you. you know, 30 years ago, I would have been more, like, tolerant of those conversations but like come on just google it you know just 
it's yeah, so it's easy. So easy. We all got smartphones. You know, there's a public library with internet access, even if you don't have a smartphone. Yeah, the uh, Catholic Church doesn't hold on to this stuff anymore like they did because in the end, I don't need 900 animal skins. I don't have monks having to transcribe. I have like a printer, and I literally have the internet to copy and paste and spread or, it. There always seems to be two, like, you know, you hear it, uh, communion in the hand now is an ancient church tradition or the priest facing the people, ancient church tradition. You hear it with the, the Protestants, too, like, well, the original, like, they found the true secret mystical Da Vinci Code vein back to the, the actual church fathers. Back to Gnosticism um, Well, original tradition, you know, and so that's how they frame it a lot of times is that what we do is somehow the Catholic Church has gone off the rails, but they... Have no fear. They have found, you know, God That's just wait, God just waited, you know, nineteen hundred and fifty something years to go ahead and show the light. I've always wondered: does that mean everybody prior to their awesome revelation was damned because they didn't have that little tidbit of truth? Well, see, my whole thing is like, I mean, if all I got to do is say I believe in Jesus Christ, and boom, you're okay, no matter what happens from here on no out. No matter what I do, right? Okay, and now we're gonna go and uh, finish up here. 23L. So, you it's think finally you done. Just kept it's finally numbers. done. <laughs> <laughs> I know all you guys out there are relieved now. So, by what kind of acts do we believe the doctrines contained in the Bible and in divine tradition? This is where our first virtue comes in. This is a divine virtue that ultimately is handed to us by God. And we're going to talk about this in a future episode as well. But we believe them because of faith. So, God hands us faith if we decide that we want it. So, we have to, this means that this goes back to graces. Graces are not just going to benefit us unless we consent. So in the end, when we consent to those graces handed to us by God, faith being one of the key ones, in the end, this allows us to then look at accepting the truth that is handed to us as well so that we can neither deceive nor be deceived because God cannot deceive or be deceived. In the end, we're all sharing in this truth with him, and this allows us to see a depth of understanding that exists in this world that you cannot find in the secular culture at all. It's just not there. So unless you guys have anything to add. Uh, faith is faith is a tough one. It's a complete gift. What is the quote? that you, Those that have faith, no explanation is, is necessary. And those that don't, no explanation will matter. Yeah, it's, it's basic as that. If you don't, if you're struggling with your faith, the best thing I could probably offer up to you is, is to pray for it, pray for the gift to merit it. I often find, though, when talking with some people that say they're struggling with faith, it's not that I don't believe they are, because certainly I think there are some people who are just like, man, I just don't feel the zeal, I'm just not on fire. But a lot of times when I talk with them, I, I just get the feeling that they're fighting it for, for other reasons, right? Because essentially a realization that there is a God, that he does expect us of me, that's scarier than just telling yourself, hey, it's, it doesn't exist, it's not real, it's not real, right? Because that's that's really terrifying to accept and recognize that there is a mark I have to meet and the possibility of missing it. Like that is just soul crushing if you don't think you're up for the challenge. So it's much easier just to be like, oh, I just don't have faith. I just don't see it. Like, and you can sit there and you can misuse your rational intellect that you've been given to, you know, just denial. Do, just be in denial. Yeah. You know, you can be Judas watching the dead be raised by the Lord and Savior. You can be like, hey, Jesus, what was that like? He can tell you about this and that. He can give you all the best advice in the world. And in the end, if you don't want to accept it, then you're just not going to. And so right there, we are going to end lesson two. Thank you guys for joining us. Make sure, don't forget to follow us on YouTube. Go and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify. And we will join you again next week with lesson three. So as always, St. Joseph... Pray for us. us.